Well, hello, everybody. Welcome once again to Driving the Deal, the podcast that uh, the Farragut Square Group hosts with our partners, McDermott, Will, and Emery. I'm Brian Fortune, head of the Farragut Square Group. This week, we have a very special episode. We will be reviewing what we've been seeing throughout this year and what we're looking at in terms of healthcare PE deals in the months to come. Our special guests today are Jackie Williams, Farragut Square's Director of Research, uh, as well as our Senior Analyst in the D.C. office, Holly Stokes. So welcome aboard, everybody. Let's dig right in. All right, Holly, let's start with you. So obviously, we've been doing a lot of deals in physician services. And, you know, as part of that, we've been monitoring a number of macro Medicare policies that have affected 2023 reimbursement. Why don't you start off by kind of outlining what, what each of those pressures are that we've been monitoring? Absolutely. So on the 2023 horizon, we are seeing four primary macro pressures for Medicare reimbursement for physician services. The first pressure is a proposed 4.4% cut to the conversion factor to the physician fee schedule. And this would be applied evenly across all specialties. This cut to the conversion factor is primarily driven by an overhang from 2021 reimbursement changes to evaluation and management codes and the resulting budget neutrality cut from that. For the last two years, Congress has intervened and provided some funding to phase in that cut. But in 2023, we are seeing the cut roll back into view as that congressional funding expires. The second pressure is the continued phase-in of the clinical labor input, where in 2022 rulemaking, CMS finalized a plan to update clinical labor inputs over a four-year period, such that codes that are relatively heavy on clinical labor will see some tailwinds, but codes that are relatively light on clinical labor will have to compensate with headwinds. And the magnitude of that pressure does vary substantially by code, but generally it's creating greatest pressure on interventional radiology and vascular surgery. And this pressure is most acute in the office setting. The other two macro pressures that we're watching for are being applied across sector and across site of service. And those are the return of the 2% sequester, which came back in Q3 of this year and a potential 4% pay-go cut due to funding spent in the American Rescue Plan. So those are sort of the four converging pressures on Medicare reimbursement in 2023 and provide a worst-case outlook for what we could be seeing. Now, you know, as you know, in the last two years of this issue involving budget neutrality and the ENM codes, uh, Congress has been very interested and they've actually intervened a couple of times. So when you think ahead toward the end of the year, uh, what do you think is, is sort of realistic in terms of possible congressional intervention on, on any of these four things that you mentioned? That's right. So we believe it's possible Congress will once again intervene on the conversion factor. What this would likely look like is a third year in a row of end of year legislation that helps spread that cut out across other years. So likely we could see some of that cut this year and some into 2024. We also could see end-of-year legislation include continued relief to the pay-go cut, potentially either kicking the cut uh, further down the road, which is what they did in last year's end-of-year legislation, or providing a more permanent relief such that it doesn't have to be an issue every single year. Importantly, we are going to really need to see a ramp-up of stakeholder efforts to work with Congress on securing this relief. And we do not expect any sort of congressional intervention prior to CMS finalizing the rules in November. 
meaning you should definitely expect to see some headline risk around these cuts, but know that it's very possible that Congress could once again intervene in December and CMS would walk back the cuts prior to implementation. Yeah, and that's not just the only thing they need to advocate on. So, you know, one thing that you and I both noted when we read the rule was CMS outlined some some interesting future considerations that, that uh, sort of look like storm clouds on the horizon. That's definitely true. We've definitely seen that because the 2023 proposal includes near-term pressure, that's getting stakeholders focused. But there's also some early signals that you mentioned that are really these storm clouds of what we could see as pressure in the back half of the 2020s. The first pressure would be that CMS uh, could implement a new G-code, which they first previewed in 2021 rulemaking with that increased E&M reimbursement. This G-code would provide additional reimbursement for ongoing primary care related to a serious or complex condition. And when CMS initially implemented this code in 2021, Congress placed a moratorium on it until 2024 in order to mitigate some of the cut to the conversion factor. And while it was initially unclear if the change in administration that coincided with this would dampen CMS's appetite for implementing the code once the moratorium lifts, CMS did signal in this year's proposed rule that they do intend to move forward with this new code once able to. Essentially, this would create new reimbursement opportunities for select providers, but it would also necessitate yet another wave of across-the-board cuts to the conversion factor, potentially around 3% once implemented. Another very important signal in the 2023 proposed rule was CMS's discussion of rebasing the Medicare Economic Index. Essentially, in their discussion, CMS suggested interest in reweighting the relative value that physician work, practice expense, and malpractice insurance costs are given. And under the proposal, over a four-year period that would begin in 2024 at the earliest, CMS would effectively increase reimbursement to most PPMs in the office setting, with then reimbursement declines to the professional reimbursement component for services rendered in the facility setting. Now, I do want to emphasize this is the first stage of the conversation, so there's going to be stakeholder engagement that could change the timeline or the methodology of how this all shakes out, but it's definitely a change to watch, and overall, it could help promote a bit of site neutrality or at least lessen the price differential between the office and the higher acuity facilities. No, thank you for that. I mean, MEI last time was was definitely a, uh, a bit of a dramatic proposal that required some navigating. So lots to keep track of. All right, let's broaden the conversation now. I'm going to pull in Jackie and she's going to ask a few questions. Thanks, Brian. So Holly, so far in 2022, we've been busy with buy-side and sell-side engagements, as well as post-transaction strategic advisory work in cardiovascular, GI, ophthalmology, and infusion, to name a few PPMs. Let's discuss the Medicare environment for these specialties and what we're advising clients, maybe also including the drug pricing provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act. Absolutely. So across all these specialties, keep in mind those macro forces that we talked about earlier. But generally, when we go into the cardio space, we've been seeing a lot of interest in assets that sort of merge between cardio and vascular. Generally, if you tend to lean more heavily on the cardio-specific codes, you could see around a 4% cut to uh, your services under the PFS for 2023, not including that sequester or PAYGO. 
with really clinical labor exerting a pretty minimal impact on you. But as you move into more vascular specific codes, you're going to see sharper pressure from the clinical labor inputs around a six to 7% across the sector, but again, very code specific. Additionally, we're seeing a lot of interest around ASCs in the space, given that regulatory changes have allowed for more and more procedures to move to lower acuity settings. And we're also seeing very early but continued interest in this ASC OBL hybrid model that allows practices to invest in the continued shift of services and the shift of reimbursement levels. Thinking about GI, the space is pretty stable outside of those macro threats. We're also seeing that targeted policies by CMS are actually helping to increase access for the sector, including recent proposals around closing the colonoscopy loophole to remove patient cost sharing for colonoscopies when a polyp is found, to lowering the minimum age for certain uh, colorectal cancer screening tests from 50 to age 45, and to include follow-on screening colonoscopies after non-invasive stool-based colorectal cancer screening tests, again, to ensure that access without cost barriers for patients. So those are all very good signs in that sector. Turning to ophthalmology, the specialty would see around a 3% cut under the 2023 proposal, reflective of our view changes helping to mitigate some of that conversion factor pressure. In the space, two things that always come up in diligences are that we do expect a near-term RUC review to the cataract code family, which could create modest pressure on reimbursement, but likely not at the levels that the industry has come accustomed to in recent years. And when you think about the retina space, we do expect the introduction of biosimilars to exert some pressure on the biologic reimbursement in the next few years. That said, reimbursement pressure would likely be much more muted than what you'd expect with a typical generic entry, just given how CMS uses distinct billing codes for biosimilars, given the patient's stickiness to treatment, and because of the presence of off-label generic Avastin, which has to some degree already tempered the pricing on Ilia and Lucentis. And finally, with regard to infusion, we do expect clinical labor updates to exert pressure on injection and administration codes, but these are typically not a large share of an asset's reimbursement. Instead, the important thing when evaluating an infusion asset is really around the drug mix. And in a diligence, we always examine both market pressures that could change the average sales price and drug pricing proposals that could change the overall reimbursement calculations and methodology for drugs. With that in mind, we have been spending a lot of time examining the recently passed Inflation Reduction Act, which does have two key provisions that would impact Medicare reimbursement levels to pharma, and in some sense, providers for Part B. The first provision is a requirement that drug manufacturers pay a rebate for Medicare Part B and D drugs if their average increase in total allowed charges outpaces the rate of inflation. Overall, our outlook on this provision is that it could temper the rate of growth of profit for a drug in the later years of a drug's life cycle. However, given that it doesn't set any restrictions around launch prices, we expect pharma will likely begin raising their launch prices to try and shift that profit into earlier in the drug's life cycle and essentially uh, emerge without a large impact. The second provision allows Medicare to quote unquote negotiate prices for a select number of high spend Medicare Part B and D drugs. 
A couple of things to note about this provision. While it does call for negotiation, it effectively sets a price ceiling given the mechanics of the language. Additionally, it would allow for 10 Part D drugs to be selected in 2026 and eventually phase up to 20 Part B or D drugs in 2029 and beyond. And the selection of which drugs and biologics can be selected is quite limited. They have to have no generic or biosimilar in the market. They have to have been in the market for at least nine years for small molecule and 13 years for biologic. And they have to be in the top 50 Medicare spend. Outside of those considerations, there are other factors at play that try to limit the impact to providers by lowering acquisition costs and that try to limit the impact that it would have adversely on competition. I know that is a lot of information and an indulgence we do go quite deep, but the overall takeaway is that the provision is really aimed at drugs that have been in the market for a long time and have managed to avoid competition beyond initial patent expectations, whereas it doesn't seek to impact drug launches, early life cycles, or those that are facing competition. Yeah, and we've definitely gotten questions around the specifics and the details of the drug pricing reform provisions and uh, within our conversations with stakeholders. There's certainly uh, different interpretations of um, the number of drugs that will be affected. So clients should definitely uh, reach out for more fulsome conversations around the Inflation Reduction Act. So with all PPMs, obviously, we're looking at in-office versus ASC environments. So Holly, what near-term developments are we anticipating for those two settings for PPMs related you know, to the MEI that you referred to before, the expiration of the ASC methodology tied to uh, the hospital market basket? Yes. So as we discussed, the rebasing of the MEI could help lessen the price differential for office versus ASC reimbursement in the medium term. It would do that by lowering the professional reimbursement, but it would not impact the facility fee collected by the ASC for performing that service. So it's very important to understand both sorts of pricing reimbursement levels going into an ASC. The facility rate is instead set by the ASC fee schedule. And as you mentioned, that is currently benefiting from being tied to the hospital market basket update through 2023. As we approach 2024, we are going to be looking for signals on whether CMS will continue using this update long-term instead of using the CPI, which was the previous policy. Generally, we believe CMS could likely continue to use the favorable hospital market basket because it does align with the broader goal of site neutrality. But as this policy gets pushed into the longer term, definitely expect renewed calls for ASC cost reporting in order to bolster that policy. And so we come to um, some recent activity on um, SCOTUS rulings. And so obviously the SCOTUS rulings on, on Dobbs that overturned Roe v. Wade and 340B are having immediate impacts. What can we expect from midterm elections and the next state legislative sessions related to Dobbs? And how will we see the 340B ruling show up in the 2023 HOP-D final rule? So you're absolutely correct. Both of these have exerted very near-term pressure that we're going to have to see resolve. Uh, 340B ruling, we'll see a bit more of that come to fruition this fall. 
specifically CMS is no longer going to be able to use the 2018 policy that it created to pay ASP minus 22.5% for drugs that are acquired through the 340B program. And instead, they're going to have to shift to the higher reimbursement level. Additionally, CMS is going to have to provide back pay to 340B hospitals that had payment reduced in past years. However, given the timeline of when this SCOTUS ruling came out and when the 2023 proposal for HOPD came out, CMS didn't have time to take those factors into consideration. And so before they create the final ruling this fall, they are going to have to significantly rework the rule. Uh, specifically, they are going to have to likely cut the conversion factor across all hospitals in order to pay for the increased reimbursement going to 340Bs. Additionally, as we move forward, they are going to have to provide some sort of back pay to these 340B hospitals, which also has to be done in a budget neutral manner. And what that likely means is that they will need to recoup money from hospitals that experienced related payment increases in prior years in order to pay for these new policies for 340B. With regard to the Dobbs ruling, specifically what this does, it is it allows state lawmakers to determine how to restrict or to protect access to abortion as well as how to define abortion. And currently we are in a constantly changing environment where access and definitions vary widely by state, where states are implementing multiple laws that often conflict with each other, where state prosecutors are pushing the limits of how to enforce and interpret these laws, and where there are continued state level legal challenges that create a stop and go policy implementation where providers really don't know which mechanisms they are operating under. Generally, we expect that uncertainty will prevail for several months, and we will likely see a wave of new state laws next year as legislators convene and seek to codify protections or restrictions or clarify what other laws mean. One very important thing to keep your eye on is how the language of each law is written as they can often create significant downstream impacts that create ambiguity or potential hostility to services outside of abortion, including pre and post implant embryo fertility services, or general OBGYN and primary care, or medical tourism, or data privacy. These issues are all very complex and highly geographic, and so if you are at all looking at the women's health sector, we would urge you to give us a call and think through the sort of downstream diligence you may need to consider. Yeah, all good points. The Dobbs ruling doesn't just impact access to abortion, but those definitions surrounding that ruling and state activity is going to have impact on fertility and other women's health care areas where private equity is involved. So to wrap up this conversation, I don't think any conversation with, about healthcare is complete without surprise billing and price transparency. I know that we've been fielding a lot of questions related to these two policies. So can you give us an update on where we stand from a government perspective on surprise billing and price transparency? Absolutely. So the No Surprises Act has been in effect since January, but listeners have likely heard about ongoing legal challenges to the law. And what's really important to emphasize is that these legal challenges are concentrated around the exact considerations and weight that arbiters must give uh, the considerations when determining an appropriate price for out-of-network services, but they are not a greater challenge to the No Surprises Act and the consumer protections. Specifically, the legal challenges ask whether the qualifying payment amount, 
which is a plan's median in-network rate, should be presumed the appropriate rate during arbitration. Two lawsuits already have had an initial ruling in favor of providers, which would strike down the larger weight given to the QPA, but again, leave that overarching consumer protection in place. Since these rulings, the administration has issued new guidance and is expected to publish a new implementing regulation around arbitration in the near term. And this month, we have seen a very significant ramp up of lobbying efforts by stakeholders to try to get in the door before any sort of finalized rule comes out. Outside of the lawsuits, and more in line with your second question around price transparency, the No Surprises Act also includes a provision that requires providers to furnish a good faith estimate of prices for scheduled self-pay services. This price transparency policy only applies to services scheduled at least three days in advance. It's limited to services that would be reasonably expected given the diagnosis and is currently limited to the scheduling provider for their charges. But once we move into 2023, providers will be responsible for integrated communication with their co-providers and co-facilities, such as anesthesiology, to provide a comprehensive list of charges for the date of service. And this larger requirement in 2023 is facing significant pushback by stakeholders that are asking for more time, given the technical and staffing investments that are going to need to be invested in, in order to make sure that they have this kind of communication in play. Other price transparency regulations that we're watching for is the hospital price transparency rule and the transparency in coverage rule. The hospital price transparency rule went into effect at the beginning of 2021, and it requires hospitals to publish a comprehensive machine-readable list for all services provided, as well as a consumer-friendly list of 300 shoppable services. However, there has been very low compliance to date with the rule, and after months of warnings and letters and corrective action plans, we are beginning to see CMS show increased interest in enforcement action and penalties against hospitals that are not complying. The transparency and coverage rule requires group health plans and insurers in the group and individual market to post cost files online and update them periodically. Enforcement of this rule only went into effect in July 2022, so there is limited data on compliance or enforcement, but we are seeing some early signals that indicate better compliance. Thanks so much, Holly. That was a great summary of everything that we've been looking at and are keeping an eye on. So back to you, Ryan. All right. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you, Holly, for that excellent recap of the year so far with Leva. A lot to think about as we move ahead and, and look out for the next few months coming to the end of the year. As always, I want to thank everybody for listening in. As you know, we do these very frequently, so uh, there will be more episodes to come in the future. And of course, we always use this opportunity to remind you uh, of upcoming events where we hope to uh, see you and chat in person for your calendars. I'm sure you you may have this already, but uh, again, McDermott holding their HPE uh, New York conference on Friday, October 21st. We will be there along with our McDermott colleagues, and we certainly hope to see everybody. I think it'll be a, a highly attended and a very productive conference. Have a great week, everyone, and we will talk to you again soon. Thank you. 
This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2022, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication, without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.